and Emily, especially for that wonderful selection of songs that I hope we will all really remember as we get into our sermon for today. Uh, Cliff is gone, so you have me, Sean Cad, getting my number five sermon. <laughs> and uh, Peter, or not Peter, Cliff, is going through First uh, Peter right now, and he doesn't like people to jump into his series or anything like that. I mean, he, when he gets going, he likes to work, you know, keep each one himself. But I figured that Second Peter was up for grabs since uh, he already claimed First Peter. So that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be in Second uh, Peter, the first chapter, and we'll be looking specifically at uh, verses three through fifteen. So uh, go ahead and follow along with me on the screen or in your Bibles, and I'll be reading it uh, from the ESV. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way... There will be, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed for your very precious, very great promises. I pray, Lord, that as we look into your word today, that we will more and more realize the wonders and the marvels of the promises that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this particular passage has always been one of my favorites, but i got to confess that for most of the time, it was a favorite of mine for the wrong reason. 
You see, at first glance, this passage seems to be a set of instructions on how to live a godly life, a step-by-step program to prove your worth, your mettle, uh, to say, and secure your path into God's graces. In short, it's a, a to-do list. I remember reading this passage in my younger days and thinking that, ooh, I found the key. I was discouraged with how poor Christian I was, my lack of holiness, and my constant failures to live up to Christ's examples. And here was a simple list of characteristics that I simply needed to practice and all would be right. To my faith, I just need to add virtue. To my virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, add self-control. Then add steadfastness to that. Next, add godliness along with brotherly affection. Then finally, top it all off with love. Easy peasy, right? (laughs) But that is not really at all what Peter is getting at here. Think back to uh, the series of sermons that Cliff has been giving us from 1 Peter. Remember that that letter was written to elect exiles, to us, to Christians who are exiled in this world, which we know this is not our home. We long for heaven, which is our true home, And we have a living hope of getting there because of Jesus' resurrection. And it's a home that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That is the promise that we have, and it is secured by God's power. That power also guards us in that promise. And this hope gives us cause to rejoice, knowing the griefs and trials and sufferings we experience and endure in this world are meant to purify our faith in God himself, which magnifies his glory and also obtains our privilege to share in his majesty. And furthermore, this assured promise of God, our hope of salvation and eternity with him in his glory, compels us to a certain form of conduct first, We live in hope, knowing God's grace has saved us utterly, and our destination, our destiny, is certain. Second, to live in holiness, knowing that God has separated us from the world and set us apart for himself to conform us to the image of his Son. And third, to live in fear, knowing that all our deeds will be be judged, For what we we do in this life matters to our Heavenly Father, and we must value the blood of Christ that was shed for our salvation. And all of this, our hope, our joy, our conduct, is predicated on the assured promise to be fully revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ, his triumphal return at the end of the age and the establishment of his eternal kingdom where all God's people will be with him in glory for all eternity. That has been what Pastor Cliff has been preaching on these past many weeks from the beginning of Peter's first letter. It is Peter's upfront message to the church, if you will. And now, 
In the second letter we have from Peter, he reminds us again. He is writing, this time, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles. That's from verse 1. He is writing as he is approaching the time of the, that the putting off of my body will be soon, as we read in verse 14. At this point, near, nearing what he knows will be the end of his time on earth, Peter wants to reiterate this important message from his earlier letter. So after a brief introduction and greeting, he gets right to the point, and this is where I made my mistake in my younger days. It's not an appeal to do these eight steps and do better. Rather, it is an appeal to his fellow Christians to be heavenly-minded. Now, you may have heard this saying before, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Sr. Some people are so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. And, of course, that is certainly true in a particular sense. We should not ignore the problems of the world as if they do not matter because we are only concerned with the hereafter. But then, according to what Peter wrote in his earlier letter and is writing now in his final instructions, that kind of heads-in-the-clouds obliviousness is not actual heavenly-mindedness. Think about what Peter is detailing here. And in his first letter, the commands and the description of our lives and conduct. Is a person exemplified by being faithful, virtuous, knowledgeable, self-controlled, godly, affectionate to his family and friends, and loving to his neighbor of no earthly good? Peter's parting message, as he is preparing to enter into heaven himself, is to remind us and to help us recall that in Christ, through his gospel, we have everything granted to us pertaining to life and godliness. Nearing the end of his life, he wants to make sure that Christians are fully aware that a heavenly mindset does indeed manifest itself in these characteristics in one's life and conduct. Now, we might think, of course, because Peter is nearing the end of his earthly life, that he would obviously be focused on the eternal. But let me just point out that one does not need to, nor should one expect to, grow old and only then think about what comes after death. Each of us, every moment, is drawing closer to death. From the youngest and the strongest to those who see themselves in the prime of life, at any moment, we could be called to our imperishable, undefiled, and unfading home. So there is no better time than the present to be of a heavenly mindset. I remember listening to a sermon recently that illustrated this point. The text was from Acts 12, and it raised the question, why did God allow James to be killed by Herod, but Peter was set free? Now, strangely, I'd never actually asked myself that question, why one and not the other. I mean, I knew that the events were in conjunction, that Peter was arrested because Herod saw that his killing of James had pleased the Jews. But why did James have to die not being delivered by an angel 
but Peter was. Did James deserve to die? Was God more pleased with Peter? Was it because the church buckled down and prayed for Peter, but they hadn't buckled down and prayed for James? Uh, Of course not. The reason James was martyred at this point, but Peter was not, lies solely within the sovereign purview of God Almighty. However, as the pastor said in this sermon, it did cement this motto for the apostles and the rest of the church. To live as Christ and to die as gain. And really, isn't that a wonderful thought? Our lives should be lived while we are here in zealous service to our King and Savior. And should he say that it is time for us to die, that is only gain. Think of all the passages in Scripture that speak of heaven, and it can only be described in part, for it is beyond our ability to comprehend or even imagine. Paul declared that it is impermissible for a man to even utter the full revelation of heaven. This leads me to believe that we are at liberty to let our imaginations run wild in our meditations of heaven. Why? Because as wonderful and as glorious as you can imagine heaven to be, you can't even come close to the reality. The world always pictures heaven as something that, shall we say, less than vivacious. I'm guilty in some ways of this myself. I used to think that heaven was only going to be like one long worship service, by which I imagined that it would probably become boring after a few months. But that is only because I was thinking in earthly terms. I challenge you to imagine beyond your experience and analogies. Let your vision be constrained only by God's attributes, his holiness, power, glory, perfection, and this most of all, that he is infinite. Imagine being in his holy presence, and there would be no other activity more wondrous or fulfilling than praising him for 10,000 years. And that each moment of that 10,000 years was more wondrous and more fulfilling than the last, because God is infinite. Imagine being with God and growing in your knowledge of him constantly, more and more, instant by instant, forever, without end, because God is infinite. Though your capacity will be infinite, because you are temporal, you will always be finite. So you will always have the ability for growth in knowledge and newness of experience forever and ever for all time. I I don't see any boredom in any of that. This is the substance of being heavenly minded, remembering what our salvation means. Not our Only are we saved from judgment to come upon rebellious men and angels, but we are saved to a glorious destiny to live as children of God and be conformed to the likeness of Christ and the image of God, being renewed in true righteousness righteousness, in a new earth and a new heaven for all eternity. This is the impetus and motivation for our efforts to add the qualities Peter lists here.
not to attain the promise of heaven, but because his divine power has already given it to us. So, how is it that we mess this up? It happens when we forget about those precious and very great promises Peter refers to in verse 4. Peter says that it is through the promises that we become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So it is safe to say that that becomes much more difficult since without remembering those promises, we rely more and more on our own strength to do the good works that he has planted in our hearts and not rely upon his divine power. And our old natures, our flesh, still desires the evil of the world, corruption from which we have been granted escape. As I look at this passage in the context of 1 Peter 1, and I pay attention to Peter's expressed intent here, I begin to see the cause of my earlier misinterpretation of the passage. Why was I stuck back then being disappointed with my Christian walk? Why did I see myself in myself a pronounced lack of holiness, a distinct lack of Christ-likeness? Why did my efforts to add any of these qualities Peter listed to my faith walk seem to be futile, ineffective, and unproductive, which is exactly opposite to what this passage declares in verse 8. Probably the problem is actually a common one within the church today. And apparently it was common back then too because here's Peter writing to first century Christians about it. And what is that problem exactly? We forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that may sound strange to you if you haven't thought of it before. It sounded strange to me too the first time I heard it. I've been in church literally all my life. Raised from infancy, I was dedicated as an infant. I was Sunday schooled, VBSed, church camped, all of it. I cannot think of a time in my life when I have not believed the truth of the Bible and trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I know what the gospel is. I know that it is the good news that Jesus died for my sins and that if I put my faith and trust in him, my sins are forgiven and I am saved. And I have always believed that and been sure of my personal salvation. But I never really gave it much thought. At least, I didn't used to. I didn't dwell on the gospel and preach it to myself or to other believers. I literally thought the gospel was something that you shared with unbelievers to evangelize them so that they would become Christians and then you set about teaching them all the things that they should now be doing to live a good and godly life. I remember this very distinctly, the instant 
I was driving in my car and listening to a podcast by a Lutheran. And he said that Christians need to have the gospel preached to them in every sermon. And all of a sudden, it was like a light went off in my head. Why had I never realized this before? It all seemed so obvious. I was discouraged, and by the way, I still get discouraged by the sin I see in my own life. If I am honest, I see much more failure than victory over sin as I look at my own heart and mind. And no amount of effort I make can ever seem to make me better. The more sin I try to purge from my life, the more sin I reveal. I am so far from the standard of perfection that attaining it becomes more impossible the harder I try. But there's good news. The gospel is what I cannot do for myself. God has already accomplished through Jesus Christ these things that I need. Instead of burying myself deeper and deeper in guilt and discouragement and despair for the sins I know I commit daily, I can preach to myself the gospel message of Christ. I, I needed to learn to distinguish law and gospel. Law being what God requires us to do, the commands God gives us, the things that I often find myself failing to do as he commands, and that is sin. And the gospel, which is what God has done for us. One of which is that he has granted us his divine power in all things that pertain to life and godliness, so that I am now actually capable, through his power, to obey his laws and do all that he commands. By the gospel, I can be successful in my effort to supplement to my faith virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. By the gospel, I can see these qualities increasing, keeping me from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if I forget the gospel, Peter says I am nearsighted, even blind, forgetting the one remedy for my sin. And that's precisely where Satan, through the wiles of the world around us and our own sinful flesh would have us be blind, ineffective, and enslaved. That is why so many Christians, myself included, and I would dare say you, often find ourselves battling discouragement and despair in our lives. Instead of the grace and peace that we know we should be experiencing on an ongoing basis because we are in Christ. Peter implores us to remember the gospel that it is God who has saved you, God who empowers you, God who is working in you and through you to accomplish his decreed ends and to bring you to himself as his perfect child for all eternity. Throughout the rest of this short final letter of Peter's, he reminds us 
that he was an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Incarnation, his suffering, his resurrection, his glorification, his ascension. But though we ourselves have not yet seen with our own eyes the revealed majesty of the Son, we have the word of God to confirm for us the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must cling to that, plant ourselves in the scriptures, because even within the church itself, false teachers will always arise who will bring in destructive heresies and entice saints of God to follow them in their heirs, enslaving them once again to sin, finding themselves in an even worse state than they were before they were saved. But Peter's antidote, his plea for us, is to remember the promise of the gospel found throughout Scripture that Christ will save to the uttermost all of his elect and redeem his creation in righteousness. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is this, this gospel, knowing it, that is what it truly means to be heavenly-minded. So what should be our takeaway from this letter? Remember to preach the gospel to yourself. Notice how Peter uses the words remind, recall, reminder in verses 12 through 15. Even though we know and are established in the truth, we need to constantly be mindful of these gospel truths. Heaven, the eternal kingdom, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not just a place that we will be one day. Heaven is the culmination and the fulfillment and the realization of the gospel. All the precious and very great promises through which we become partakers of the divine nature and escape all the corruption and sinful desire and dwell in righteousness, heaven is our homecoming. And in focusing our minds upon all of that, we enjoy all his divine power granted to us for life and godliness even now. So, to contradict Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., we should do as Peter urges us and be heavenly minded for our present earthly good. So to be effective and fruitful in our Christian walk. So to be confident in our calling and election. So to be faithful, virtuous, knowledgeable, self-controlled, steadfast, godly, affectionate, and loving. So to never fall. And so to have a rich entering into the eternal kingdom when your time on earth is done. If you don't make a habit to preach the gospel to yourself, you will become nearsighted and blind. And discouragement and despair will find you. Remember who is writing this to us. This is Peter. What other character in the New Testament do we have with more examples of slip-ups failures, and foolishness. None that I can think of. 
So who better to remind us of the gracious promises of forgiveness, the divine power of our God, than the Apostle Peter? Who could possibly understand the power of the gospel for one of Christ's chosen ones more than him? Therefore, be like Peter and firmly establish yourselves in the truth of the gospel, knowing always that heaven awaits you. And please, if you remember nothing else, remember this. The gospel is for you. It is what brought you to Christ. It is what will keep you growing in Christ. It is what will sustain your Christian walk. It, it, is, what, it is what will bring you grace and peace in the trials and struggles of your exile here on earth. It is what will usher you into the eternal kingdom of heaven. It is what will fill you with the eternal joyful praise for Jesus for all time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your Son who came and accomplished those things that we cannot accomplish for ourselves. We thank you for his shed blood, which ushers us clean into your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed your word to us, that you have revealed these truths and promises, and that you have called us to yourself for your glory. I pray, Lord, that we might always remember with each thought, with each moment, with each each thing that we encounter, Lord, that your gospel is there for us, that you are working in us and through us to bring us to yourself as your perfect child. Thank you, Lord, and give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being with us this Sunday. And I remind you to be with us next Sunday and the following Sunday when Brian Morris will be with us to give us the word.